Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right, Nick, episode 245. I believe we are interviewing, and by we, I mean you, are interviewing Dr. Sarisha Kuchimanshi, who is a former tech executive, a keynote speaker, now an entrepreneur and host of the Women, Career, and Life podcast. Unfortunately, I could not make this recording, but I thought you did an amazing job. She's also the host of a live radio talk show each week called Life Beats with Sarisha. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. She throws down some knowledge bombs for sure. Yeah, I I mean, I was listening back and I was like, oh, no, why why did I have to miss this recording? Like, it, it was just such a great conversation. If you listen closely, I did use your tactic of making a statement and not asking a question just just because. Uh Oh, this is learned behavior. It's it's infectious. It is. It is. Pretty soon you won't be able to ask questions at all. You'll only be able to comment. Right. I'll just reflect back. <laughs> the things that I thought were awesome, uh, I made some notes as I was listening, uh, the leaking bucket of women interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, like the that statement about losing women in those fields and how early it starts, I think it's it's not new, but it's worth you know, just underlining over and over again, working with a finance, both on a project basis and a personal finance basis, manager meetings. And she had actually an entire section, not just on manager meetings, like your immediate manager, but skip level meetings, meeting with your manager's manager. And I thought both of those discussions were really cool. Yes, indeed. And Sharisha is one of those folks who has survived a layoff. And I know that within the last year of the recording of this, that's been a very hot topic in the technology industry specifically. So listen for how she handled that and ways to bounce back. Yes. And uh, amazingly enough, this is only the first part of a multi-part series of, of interviews. But here it is, episode 245, part one of our discussion with Dr. Sharisha Kuchimanchi. Dr. Sarisha Kuchimanchi, welcome to Nerd Journey. Thank you, Nick. Excited to be here. Well, let's start off by having you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do today, please. Today, I'd call myself an entrepreneur. I started in tech. I worked for about 17 years in semiconductor manufacturing. Through that process, I have been gone through a layoff. I have been a stay-at-home mom. I've gone back to graduate school as part of that experience while I was a stay-at-home mom to get my PhD. And finally, recently, I quit my corporate job to kind of venture out on my own. And I host a podcast, Women Career Life, which talks about women and leadership and financial independence. So it's it's been quite a journey. There's not been a linear path along the way. Yeah, I want to dig into all those things you just said. So what we like to do here on Nerd Journey is go back to the beginning. And when I was doing some research, you studied physics in college. So tell me a little bit about what made that an interesting field of study for you. I liked sciences and problem solving. And of all of them, I guess I found I liked physics. Chemistry, no, I had a hard time with it. Organic chemistry, I think, was passing the classes was pretty much challenging. <laughs> and I had friends who did math. And I maybe in in unknown ways, the ecosystem helped. I grew up in a place which was an academic institution. It happens that my father is a physicist, though he didn't have any influence on my decision as such, because my sister studied something completely different. But 
maybe maybe there was something to that. I really liked the subject. I at that point in India, you know, you wrote an entrance exam and you graduated high school and you applied to engineering or medical school. I mean, I had stopped biology by 10th grade. I wasn't going to dissect a frog. So by the time I graduated, I then like this, you know, super competitive engineering exam, I decided I wasn't going to write an engineering exam test because I didn't want to study engineering then. I wanted to study physics. And I figured if I got admission somewhere, then I would have to go. So if I didn't have an option, then there was no decision to make. So I just liked the subjects. I, I can't describe it. It's you know, and it's and it's so long ago. It's kind of hard to recollect also what it was, but it was just interesting. And when we say engineering, we're talking about like mechanical engineering and not software engineering. Yes, software engineering didn't exist as a field then. Maybe computer science was there, but you know, it was so small. Not like today, but yes. Well, as you well know, in the science, technology, engineering, and mathematics di- mathematics disciplines, there are not that many women. We want to get that to be way more. I mean, I have a daughter. She's 13 and she loves math today. So we want to keep it that way. Absolutely. But I'm just curious, were there any specific challenges you faced studying that discipline at at the time you did being a woman, if you wouldn't mind sharing? I believe the ecosystem is quite different between the US and India in a lot of ways. I I, I see this dichotomy, right? This is a, a good way to put it. In India, in some ways, to broad brush stroke, the smarter you are, the more you're thought of. In the US, if you're an athlete, you're given credit. If you're a nerd, well, good luck to you. So I think there is sort of this flip side of the coin of how you're viewed, which I think makes a difference. I ended up actually going to a school because the state I grew up in, when you studied sciences, you ended up in men's colleges or women's colleges at that time. So I ended up going to a girls' college though I studied co-ed the rest of the time. But I had friends who ended up in engineering schools and, you know, those who studied mechanical or electrical were one of a few women in a sea of mostly guys in the classroom. And I'm sure their challenges might have been different. And I'm so happy to hear that your 13-year-old daughter wants to pursue science because I tell the story often when my kids were in that age in middle school and they were competing like, you know, state math science competitions, they have this picture at home. There are like 40 kids and six girls in that. And I'm like, there is something wrong with this picture. You talk about high school girls and math and STEM. You need to catch them at elementary school because you kind of already lost the pipeline. And then when you talk about corporate world, that pipe is just continuously leaking with holes. And it's like, where do you stop the flow? And talking to young women, young women in high school, you find the same challenge, right? It's this confidence of, can I do it? Like I had this... um, girl who was a junior, senior in high school. And she's like, I want to study architecture, but I don't think I'm good enough. And I'm thinking, what makes you even think you're good enough or not? Why why does that even that thought strike you? I don't think I had those thoughts when I was a kid. It's not something that came naturally, like, are you good enough? I mean, yes, I thought, you know, some of the guys who were like outperforming were, were smarter at the things they were doing. As girls, we were competing in our own way amongst my friends. And interestingly, I guess maybe all my friends were, we were all of a similar mindset. We just liked doing things. We were all interested in science. And in that group of maybe like six of us, I think four of us have PhD. So it's like, and we've all not linearly gone down this path. You know, we've taken breaks. We've had families. We've gone back to graduate school. So it's not like we started out saying this is what we want, but you have to find your support network. And your daughter hopefully finds it among the girls in her community. If not, even the boys, you know, the boys are just as supportive. They don't look at it as difference. And if someone is pulling your confidence down, don't go and hang out with them. That's, that's all I can say, because there is somebody who is going to always challenge you. But even, even we have so much self-doubt from time to time. So find mentors, find peers. And your daughter is not thinking of mentors and peers. But, you know, if you think she's still interested, but her spark is kind of, you know, dimming a bit. Find someone to talk to. Like if you wanted her to talk to me, you know, someone like that, just reach out and say, hey, what's your journey been like? Find those people. I had an email from my kid's school, actually, because I was talking to them about encouraging like workforce development and things. I've got an email from their CTE coordinators and their middle school teachers asking me saying, hey, we've started a career club. Can you help us find people in these various fields to come and talk to the students? So I'm like, okay, I got that email this week. So I have to go look through the list and see who do I know in my network that I can ask to see and come and talk to them. That's so cool. Yeah, that's so cool because you need to see people like you. 
And maybe that is what was the thing. If, if as you're asking me, that was something deeper. I had all these people around me who were on an academic path. So it was not unheard of to go down that path. But on the flip side, not many of the girls also went that far, right? Because, you know, families and, you know, culture does change. Even here, it's the same culture. It's a culture places don't change. But how do you kind of stick to that path and convince your parents or convince your families to do certain things? We all have to navigate that and find your allies along the way. Yeah, it's really hard if you feel like you're alone or have to go it alone. It's not that these young ladies or young men even don't have the talent. They might just have the doubt and not have the support, as you mentioned. Yes. And in schools, if if you're someone who's maybe pursuing this or going to be a first-time college grad, I've worked with a lot of colleagues who, you know, first co- first-time college grads, maybe find that teacher, find that club, find that one person. And maybe your school is not big enough to have all the clubs. Maybe find a community center. Reach out. The social media now, you know, when you're listening to the podcast, maybe you can take an email you and just reach out through a DM or something and say, or LinkedIn. There are so many avenues. I know it takes work and it's hard work, but usually people are willing to help, especially if they see where you're coming from and what your ask is. If it's if it's very transactional and I want something from you, then it may be off-putting. But if it's something like I'm seeking knowledge, I'm seeking to understand this, or I need support for this, absolutely. Yeah, I want to learn more about something you shared or can you point me in a direction here? And you don't know what people will say until you ask. But if you don't ask, you have 0% chance of getting any kind of productive answer. Yes, I interestingly went to the Dallas Startup Week and um, one of the ladies said the three most beautiful, important words in the English language are, please help me. Yes. So don't forget to ask. And be specific, right, on what you need help with. Help me with X. Exactly. I I absolutely agree. You have to be specific. Don't just send a random email saying, I need career advice. Like, you may not know anything, and that's a perfectly fine question to ask, but give some frame of reference of this is where I'm coming from and this is what I'm trying to get. So they may only be able to get you like a little step. They cannot give you the final answer because you're not that far in the journey yet. But be specific with the ask. I tend to ask people, if I know them or I think you know, that we are sort of working on similar things maybe for 30 minutes. Some people who are like super busy and, you know, I'm asking for like a step up or a sort of a different ecosystem they are in, I'll ask for 15 minutes. And I'm like very clear on what I'm going to talk about in that 15 minutes. It's not often an exploratory conversation. I will say here is what I'm, we have 15 minutes. I'll ask them, do you have time beyond 15 minutes? Because I don't want to run over. Here's what I wanted to talk to you about. This is why I'm coming to you. And then let them answer. and then. We move from there. That's such good etiquette, even in company meetings, to say, hey, can you run over this time? I think that's great to be mindful of other people's time and asking for more if you need it, but being respectful of the boundary that that they've given you originally. Yes. (laughs) Standing meetings and walking meetings work better. They cut the meeting shorter. Yeah. Steve Jobs used to take walking meetings all the time with people. Yeah, that's what I used to do in my office too. It, it's great. You get exercise. If there's nothing to see on a computer, let's go for a walk. And it builds a different rapport. Your conversation's not face-to-face. Sometimes it, it helps to drive a different conversation too. Sure. Well, one place you're going to get a lot of different conversations is when you move from one country to another. And you actually relocated from India to the U.S. What are some of the challenges that people don't see in relocating like that to somewhere else? I think with the access to how much knowledge is out there now, it may not be quite so different, right? As I think about it now with social media and stuff, you can pretty much figure things out. I think the challenge that comes is, for me, when I moved, of course, you know, I'd watched tons of Hollywood movies. There were no highways in Pittsburgh. Only when I landed in Dallas did you see the super highways. But it's about the lingo, the language. It's like, how do you order to go? You know, I remember they had a class actually for us in school talking for the international students on how they communicate. Like for here or to go, what does that mean? Because I'm sure if I stood in a subway line, I would have no idea. And, you know, they wouldn't understand. So how do you ask these questions, like certain etiquettes about that knowledge? And I think the most challenging when you come is, you know, finding accommodation, 
figuring out your social security card, if you have to get a license, credit cards, all these things are such a must, uh, cell phones. And walking that can be quite challenging because one piece is needed for the next piece is needed for the next piece. And how do you build this? And someone has to walk you through this. And the other challenge I find is depending on which stage you move in your life, young, you're a college student or you're working as an adult, financial journey becomes so important that you have to know what the tools that are available to you. And we never talk about these tools. So you're unlikely to learn what those tools are beyond just the ones I mentioned. Like finance is such a sort of taboo stigma subject that rarely any of us talk to our friends about it. So where do you learn about it? I have a friend who moved in her mid-20s and until her mid-30s hadn't even heard of like IRAs because we didn't talk about it. And I'm like, 10 years of stuff that you didn't get to compound and, and age matters at that point. So I'm not saying it's it's too late, but the earlier you do it or you do it today is when you get you know, to build that sort of financial well-being in a way. Sure. So that you can eventually go do things and pursue your passions like being an entrepreneur, for example. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it, you're right. It doesn't, it's not really something that is taught to us well, especially from a personal finance standpoint. And, and I've seen instances where it's actually sort of a black box in the corporate world. So maybe we should go there for a second. Given that you've been in leadership, what is the finance team's role when you're in business and having to work with them and you know what does that mean is in terms of being different from accounting because i have found that technologists at least we have trouble speaking the language of finance or understanding the metrics that they deem important other than just saying no to the cool project that i want to do right from my experience because i work largely in manufacturing environments they are looking at because you might have equipment, you, there's people, there's processes, there's a lot of moving parts, like there's repair and you know investment and things like that. They're looking at the future projection of what does the market look like, what are the needs of the organization, and where do you want to invest those resources? And of course, they have their monthly and their quarterly reports, and they're looking at their projections and are you meeting goals, and they're flexing. It always helps I think no matter which role you are, and probably in finance as much, for finance and leadership and engineering to work together. Because just like you said, it can rub people the wrong way by just hearing the response, but not the whys and the what's. And your response might change and your, you may find a different way to tackle the problem, right? By coming to it and, and showing it. When sometimes people are proposing projects, you know, say they're going for cap expenditure or putting in a capital package or something. They've sat and churned through it. You know, you have in numerous meetings and then you come up with a packet. But the final packet, if it modifies you, I think it always is imperative to go back to the original sources. Maybe you have not had time because this is what usually happens, right? Deadlines loom on you. You barely have time. You've gone through so many iterations. You just want to get it in. But I think it always helps to close the loop. And the other thing is it helps to establish a relationship. And I know we don't have time to nurture all of these, but... In that time that you're spending with someone, spend time to understand why and what they're doing. Because if the process or submission looks different from what you were expecting, you know, if you had a relationship, it's a bit easier to kind of work, work around it. Otherwise, it can lead to like sort of hard feelings around it. And I've not really seen this, but I can easily see how relationship, because in the end, we are all people working on whatever problem it is. So we will have to work together. You don't have to always see eye to eye with the other person. Actually, in some ways, if you can have a healthy disconnect or a healthy debate, or sometimes maybe a bit unhealthy, it's not a bad thing to have a conflict because you might drive an innovative solution or think outside the box. But finance is a key part. I mean, literally nothing runs without money. I know for the longest time, I thought I had the same mindset. I'm like, engineering, why? But think about it. Companies garments, institutions, including nonprofits, everything runs because of money. If there was no revenue generation or no way to generate resources or fundraise, you cannot do the work, nor is anyone going to buy your product. What is the point then, right, for doing all this work? So we cannot kind of wear blinders and say, oh, it's not important. But there are decisions to be made that, I guess, 
whoever is doing in whatever capacity, including my own thing that I am running, that I have to go back and vet and say, where am I spending my time? I, I'm doing that constantly, especially nowadays, since I'm in this sort of transition phase. What's my ROI? How much time am I spending on things? I'm, you know, sort of this penny wise pound foolish. Like, what is this? Where do I want to spend my resources? Because time is a constraint as much as finance is a constraint. So I'm constantly trying to work with that. So think of yourself as running your own business, whatever your life looks like. Even if you're working a full-time job, you're a student, and translate that to a bigger ecosystem. Everyone needs to manage their budget. Except for some reason, all governments seem to manage it differently, but mostly we all need to manage our budget. Definitely. Because if you go over budget and you're living paycheck to paycheck, that's a bad situation. Yes. Let's go back to the education for a second. Did you get educated when you pursued physics and then it looks like you, you later studied material science and engineering? Did any of that education include a financial focus or was that something you picked up later it's funny you asked that question no i didn't have a financial focus in school i didn't even have economics nothing i studied physics i know i talked about not doing engineering exams so i just want to tell the people who are listening to this podcast that at that point i didn't study engineering i chose to go into engineering as a segue because i was doing materials research as a physicist. And I realized I could not do more higher math and quantum physics. It was just beyond my capability to understand and comprehend. So materials research became material science and engineering. So it's kind of like a segue. But there was no financial education. And the reason I, I'm kind of thinking of your question is so point on is I'm actually doing a TEDx talk in October. And the topic is, are we rich or poor money conversations with kids? Because we need to be having these conversations with our kids, which I do with mine up to a point, you know, and constantly it's a learning process. And we do not have financial education in schools, you know, mandated in all schools, right? I believe my kid's school had it, but I think it was optional. And I'm pretty sure they didn't take the class. So it's more and more imperative that we have those conversations at home, with our friends, with kids around. If you're a mentor, you don't have to talk always the numbers, it does help to talk about it, but you need to. And it's just been a learning process for me because obviously when I came to the US, my father did, you know, at home, we talked about it some. So that's where I learned enough of the concepts. I got laid off from my first job. You hear, right, people talking in the ecosystem and they're like, you need to roll over your 401k. I'm like, okay, what is that? So I called the bank that I had an account with and I rolled over based on the advisor's information. It was a total disaster because he loaded it, the funds in the front, the back, I didn't know what all that stuff was. I thought whoever was giving me advice was going to give me like good advice. And then later on, as I learned more and more, I realized oh, this is such a mess because that's also like a sort of scary decision because you're undoing something and it, you're not sure whether you should undo because there's no right time to undo, right? Every curve looks positive. It's going up and it says if you stop it, it's going to go bad. And you're like, uh, should I do it? So I had to undo a lot of these things and kind of learn. I would read books. That time, there was some audio, but mostly a lot of book reading and just from there, trying different things. And mine is a very simple thing. I talk about financial independence, especially for women and stuff. But my thing is very mostly hands-off. I've spent a lot of time figuring out things. I know what I need, what, what, what I want to do, what do my numbers look like. And once I know that, I'm like, okay, most of it runs on autopilot. I do not spend time thinking about it, looking at it. I figure that thing is going to do its thing. It's very simplified. If I want to complicate it, I could, but I realize it's not my personality to go and watch over it. I just cannot do it. So I just have to decide what works for me and let it do that. But to your point, no, we don't learn any of that in school. Yeah, that sounds sort of like the automatic millionaire mindset. But David Bach wrote a really good book on that. It's a great resource for people out there. Let's go back to what you said a second ago. You said you got laid off from your first job. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the psychological impact of something like that happening when it's just in general and then the fact that it's your first job and how one should recover from that. It was less than a year into the first job and the economy was kind of, you know, going through its crisis stage. See, now we talk about layoffs, right? There's a lot of stuff on LinkedIn, there's hashtags and things like that. At that time when I got laid off, first of all, LinkedIn didn't exist. And nor did people talk about it. It was a very sort of taboo subject again. You definitely didn't talk about it. And it's hard. I'm a, I was on an immigrant visa. I was able to end up going on a spousal visa. But when I had to transition back to work, it took a long time for them to process my visa status. And the company didn't have the right resources. 
But I had this wonderful manager who held the job for me. He could have quite literally let me go and said, I'll hire the next person. But he held the job for like four months till they figured out how to process the visa for me to come back. But when you're going through a layoff, it's very hard because you're doubting yourself more than anything. And it's usually it's your first job. You haven't really even got your feet wet. But this is what I would tell people. Statistics show, I think it's like over 40% of the US will experience a layoff. So literally every one of us is going to get laid off at some point, at least half of us. So don't take it personally. It is going to happen. Just think about it of economy and company policies and whatever model they're generating revenue. We talked about finance already. Instead, you think about how you're going to make yourself financially resilient and career resilient while this is going to happen, because it is going to happen to you, most likely. So how do you build against it? Obviously, at that time, I didn't have the knowledge or the words for it. But on hindsight, I think it was the best thing that happened to me because I got called back from the client that I was working to see if I wanted to come to work. I didn't know what mentorship was then. I didn't know what networking was then. But if I look back, those were the things that were happening without my knowledge because I would meet with people. I would ask them questions. You know, I would meet my customers and I would get to know them just by having conversations when we are working around a process or something. So it's just these casual conversations, right? You have to build those relationships. I know a lot of people will be introverts, maybe even in certain fields, but you will have to build some rapport. People have to know what you're doing. One thing I learned from my first layoff, the big mistake I made was since I worked at a client site, I might have been doing you know, well at my client site, but I didn't really ever stop by my office often or talk to my manager often. So I realized he hardly knew what I was doing. I, I don't know if that had any impact with my layoff. But when I was going back to review what I did, what I would do differently, I realized he probably had limited visibility to what I did. So I made it a point that when I went back to work, that I meet my manager, you know, one-on-ones regularly. I mean, if you're in sight, I know now that a lot of people work remotely, there's these like walk-bys to their office and just say, hey, I'm working on this or that. Or you could just drop a note to your boss. If you're such a huge remote worker portfolio your company has, then they have tools for it. But keep your boss in the loop, what you're working, what you're going to be doing and deliver on time. And even if you can, exceed it if possible, but at least deliver on time or give them a huge heads up if you're going to be late. Don't leave them hanging. And that was the thing I learned about going through the layoff. So the mindset is it will be hard, but find other people, find things to do. I think I started to go for these art classes in the community college, whatever I could find. I didn't have a TV at home. So we actually got a TV because I had no adult conversation. I'd moved to a new city. I didn't know anyone. So TV was sort of my adult conversation. I'm like, I could see adults on TV. I'm like, this is entertainment. But I was like, okay, what else to do? So do something where you get in front of people. You don't have to interact with them if you're not ready to interact. But go out, go for a walk. You know, libraries are great resources. Or Every community, no matter where you live in the world, has some ecosystem that will support you. Or just get a bunch of your friends and hang out. There you go in someone's house play a board game do do something there are so many ways but don't isolate yourself i think that's what can become very hard yes just like you shouldn't isolate yourself from your manager as you said a second ago yes so how often should i be updating my manager on the things i'm working on or does it really depend on what my role is i would say everyone needs to have a one-on-one schedule with their manager every two weeks no matter which role you are in even if it's 30 minutes, if your manager doesn't schedule it, because I know not all managers will get around to scheduling it, well, you own your career. So if it's important to you, you schedule the one-on-one if you want to make progress. So I'll wear both hats as we talk through this. I'll wear the hat of being reporting to a manager and the manager hat at the same time, because if I want something, I'm going to have to do the work. So I'm, I tell, I mean, I usually would schedule one-on-ones or I would tell my team, schedule one-on-ones, tell me a good date, schedule it. If it works for me, I will accept it. But Once in two weeks, you should. 15 minutes, go and then agenda if possible. If not, just have a chat. I've gotten to know some of my managers really well. So it's been great because you end up working for people. And you know how ecosystems in corporate move? One day you'll be their peer. One day one will be above, one will be below. Like you're going to move through these sort of Chinese checker games. So you never know where anyone will end up. This is a good point. And when you take the initiative to schedule a one-on-one with your manager, What kinds of things should you bring to that conversation? I would even start ahead. First of all, do you know what your role is? Does your manager define what your job role is? If not, start there. Find out from them what your job role is. 
what the expectations of your role are. And this is not just around performance time or when you're goal setting in the beginning of your year or the mid-year. First, set the expectations. If there are goals and things, set them up. And this is being extremely organized. And I know this may not work in every circumstance or everything. But if you have a conversation with your manager on certain topics, or you want to give an update on something you're working on, clearly set that up in your mind. If you want something from your manager beforehand, let them know. This is what I want to talk about, or this is what I need time for. Because they may have something else that they want to talk to you about. So make sure that there's that communication. And it's, it's those you know happenstance conversations. It doesn't have to be all through email. But if you're changing something, you have certain dates, something is moving, something is being added, send it in an email because you have it acknowledged and it's there on the books and you know what you agreed on. And keep that because come end of the year, you're going to forget all the things you worked on. So when they ask you, what did you do? Well, here's a quick thing that you pull up. I actually have a friend who said she kind of keeps like a Gantt chart. You know, she colors them red, green, yellow and just sees where she's performing on her things and just sends that to her boss. So whatever works for you. I like that. That's cool. And not just you, but you actually have to see what your manager's style is. Because not all our managers want that much info. They may want it differently. So you have to understand who the other person is on the other side. Some might want it monthly. Some might want a weekly report. You need to find out what those expectations are and kind of meet them or meet them halfway or negotiate it. There's lots of things we end up negotiating in life, not just our salary at the beginning of getting a job. So maybe you want a leadership role and you know you start having those conversations with your manager during the one-on-one. First, define your role. Think about the projects you're working on. Give them updates on it. Give them updates on what you're doing. If you're looking for, you know, you want to learn a new skill, you want to get some training, whatever it is, start building up on it. You can go and just, you know, plop it on the table. That's one strategy. Or you can build to it. I mean, it just depends what, what works for you, what works their style. But you need to communicate. And I understand that for everyone, the relationship with their manager may not be a good one. That's going to be hard. And then you have to be cautious and decide what is right for you. I'm not going to say one size fits all. So absolutely, if you don't think your manager is the right person, then you're going to have to figure out a way to build your career. And there are two things I would say to that. One is have skip level conversations at all times without ever throwing anyone under the bus. Uh, Be very cautious of this. Don't burn bridges. But have skip level conversations. And this is no matter whether you get along with your manager or not. If you want a promotion, there is no way your manager is going to promote you into his peer role. He cannot do that. Or she cannot do that, right? They cannot do that. Their boss is going to make that decision for them. So you need to be having skip level conversations. And you're thinking of roles and responsibilities and having this, uh, what do you ask your manager? Be intentional because, you know, when people come and say the manager is not helping them get promoted, I understand as a manager, that is your role. But on the flip side, I, I would ask, have you told them what you want to do? Because they cannot read your mind. They do not know. Or that you want to be promoted at all. <laughs> Yes. And, and I, I don't mean to be frivolous about it because the other thing is managers also go to bat for you often and they may come and put something in front of you that you do not want to do. And if they have spent their time and their social capital using it and you do not want to do that, then you have a disconnect. You know, how many times are they going to bat for you if you say no enough times? So keeping that channel of communication open really helps being clear about, hey, I want to do this, maybe this. And if you don't know what to do, try projects, try team leadership, supervisors, whatever those roles are, and find out from them. Find out from other colleagues, other peers, what's the ecosystem. I'm just talking inside a company. If you're moving to another company, that's a whole different discussion. Your manager doesn't apply there. But if you want to move within your company to a wholly different organization your manager has limited visibility to, you start networking and building there. And you build a good rapport, you know, when you think the time is right, or maybe it's after you get the job, it may not be a right time before then you let your manager know. So you have to go with your gut feel on what that looks like. But you have to invest in your career. Your manager will invest with you, but you have to first sow the seeds. They can only help you nurture it. And what if my manager, if I request to have the one-on-ones and they just don't see that that's an important thing, is that something that I then should maybe be a red flag, time to get a different job? Should I take that to a skip level? Or does that make it worse? I hope your manager is invested in having a one-on-one and you are right that they all may not be keen on it or know how to manage it or think of the importance. Maybe they've never had an example of, you know, having a one-on-one themselves. So maybe that's that's what it is. You could insist and maybe if you keep missing them, you can ask them for a different time. Or maybe you want to do a walk meeting. Like I said, I used to do a lot of one-on-ones and then as I got to know my team and we didn't always sit in the computer, 
I often did them as walk meetings. I was like, let's go for a walk and talk. Do you have meetings? I would ask them, do you have something else that's coming up? Do you have a conflict? So we would make sure that it was good and head out. So see what maybe the way or the date or the time or something is not working. And you've exhausted all those resources. You will have to figure out another way to do the one-on-one. And maybe sometimes, like you said, maybe that is just not the right fit for you. If your career is not progressing and you feel like you're getting stalled, go look elsewhere. Yeah. And does it often rub a manager the wrong way if you if they find out later that you went and met with the skip level without talking to them about it? Is that a risky move? In a lot of cases, I told my bosses I was. In some cases, I did not. Is it a risky move? I mean, maybe it is. You have to make the decision. And I didn't do it because I didn't want to tell my manager. I don't know if it was a conscious decision all the time. It also would have felt awkward to tell them. But on the flip side, I would tell my team to do skip level conversations. I would urge them to go to skip level. I'm like, you need to be meeting my boss. And I would tell them, if you want this role, I will advocate for you. I will push. But I cannot be the final decision maker. Even if I'm the final decision maker, you need to get buy-in from so many people end up voting on a lot of things beyond just me. And oftentimes, you know, this happens on the other side, right? People are betting their career on a manager or a sponsor. That sponsor moves on. They may even leave the company. And then your whole, you've hitched your wagon to one car. And then what do you do? Then you're kind of like starting from scratch. So you need to be like building a web. And oftentimes when you have like performance reviews or other things, a lot of other people are providing inputs. Your peers are providing. So you need, it's not just skip level like one boss up. You need to be networking with my peers and stuff. And I don't mean it very transactionally. You're working a project, say, that impacts that group or somebody in that group. It could be like a hallway conversation. It could even be a meeting. It doesn't even have to be either. It could be in a meeting that you get to present in or there's a discussion and you're an active member and that person gets to see what you're doing. It doesn't always have to be a formal meeting, but then people need to know what you're doing. This is often the challenge that women face. And I'm sure a lot of other people, but women strongly, this is a challenge, right? We all think if we do a phenomenal job, we'll get recognized for it. It is never going to happen. It's unlikely to happen. Maybe I shouldn't be so emphatic that it's never going to happen. But it's very unlikely to happen because there's so many things happening. You have to speak up. You have to be in that meeting. And I understand that speaking up in a meeting is quite hard and it's you know especially when someone bypasses you or doesn't give you credit and you know that's that's another struggle that women face someone moves on and someone else gets credit it can be very demoralizing at that point your allies and peers should be stepping up but if they are not stepping up one way to tackle that is maybe you meet one-on-one with the key stakeholders in in the in the meeting and have conversations with them hopefully they are cognizant of it really they should be taking the initiative and pulling you out of your shell to be represented in the meeting But say that's not happening. Just people are completely not seeing this. You know, work ecosystems have their own politics and everything. Not really meant to be political, but people are people. So they will all have their own personalities and their behavior traits. So find the people who you think would be a good fit and also have a strong say and talk to them about what they're working on, what your ideas are, and then start to build a rapport. And maybe at some time they will say, hey, you know, Nina or Nick had this idea or you can build on it. You, you'll feel more confident because you know someone in the meeting. It's always hard to walk into something blind when you don't know anybody. Oh, for sure. But once you've built a rapport with a few people, then you're willing to speak up. So that is the way I would think about it. There is risk maybe in some skip level, but I think the risk of a skip level of not doing it, I think is much more than of doing it. That's how I look at it. What is the worst that would happen? Maybe my career would get stalled and it is a bad thing. But what if it doesn't? Having gone through a layoff, having been a stay-at-home mom, I'm always looking at what is the worst that what would happen. Especially when I came back from being a stay-at-home to work, I realized my perspective had changed as I continued to look back that maybe I was much more, for lack of a better word, aggressive about my career. I was like willing to ask for things and push for things I wanted because I have already know what the other side looks like. And if I don't ask, who's going to come and give it to me? I have to ask for it myself. If I get it good, if I don't, well, I'm going to try a different way or try asking again or do something else. And I like direct feedback. I like to be kind of told and I would seek feedback saying, please tell me if this is even a viable option because I don't want to spend my time spinning my wheels and wasting my time if really there is no shot at it. I mean, I appreciate working for you and all of this, but I will move on and do something else. And 
I made moves where I didn't go and ask for feedback, but I read how, how it was going to go. And I decided, okay, this wasn't the place to be, and I will just jump ship and do something else. Wow. So much to dig into there. But I actually want to go back to the manager who held the spot open for you after you got laid off. That leaves, we'll just call it a green check mark in the box of great manager experience. Yes. So from there, you're in your second job. Tell us a little bit about the transition from I'm an individual contributor working for a manager who appreciates me and that I like to, you know, I I think I'd like to start progressing up to being a manager myself. Nick, it is painful to stop the recording there, but I think we're going we're gonna to have to do it to keep these kind of uh, reasonably sized. You know, going back uh, kind of from the beginning, again, that leaking bucket of women interested in science, technology, engineering, and math, it starts in primary school. That's where we need to like target and figure out why girls are no longer interested, you know, if that's social, like what are the pressures there? Like that we're, we're losing girls and young women in these fields. It, it's, you know, as we've talked to other people on this podcast, we need diverse backgrounds and diverse points of view, or else we lose different viewpoints to like solve problems in group settings. If you don't have a lot of people looking at problems from a lot of different perspectives, like the chances that you find a good solution to the problem, you know, go down. You know, we we know that from just research. So over and over again, losing cohorts of of young women, you know, is making our industry worse. Right. 100%. We're, we're less efficient. And I liked what Sarisha said about if you see a young lady and her spark or interest is starting to go out, get her connected with somebody like her, someone who looks like her in some yep. way, right? Another mm-hmm. role model who has been through that type of career, assuming you know someone, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly, Sarisha is a great person to contact for that. But I, I liked that advice to be watchful of and, and just mindful. Why? Did we have this sudden disinterest? Was it because this young lady suddenly feels like she cannot do it? And who told her that she couldn't do it? You know, that's not just something that you're born with. Oh, I can't do this particular role. I don't, you know, that's not a thing. Right, right. Especially if you're interested in early and then suddenly that interest starts to wane. Like there's, there's something that's happening there. Right. And I think we suspect that it's social pressures, you know, Oh, girls don't do that. Like whatever messaging is, you know, being received from whatever sources, like we need to figure those things out and, and stop them. Right. It could be media. There's any number of things. And, and, you know, we're not the first people to like hit upon this idea. Right. We're just trying to say, you know, this is something that we like as a society and like individuals in that society need to do to improve our culture and improve, you know, I mean, (laughs) if you want to look at it from like a, like a total like economic perspective again like we're missing entire cohorts of people with different perspectives from us which means that we're going to get worse business outcomes and somebody's going to come along and outcompete us by just getting more diverse voices and viewpoints and being able to solve problems better as a result if you if you want to just take it from a, a a pure like competition perspective, but I, you know, that's, I don't have that perspective. I think just being, you know, a member of our culture, like we just need to be better at that because it's ethically the best thing to do, (laughs) but it's also going to result in better economic outcomes. And as fathers of girls, we're talking to ourselves here as well as all you dads, uncles, grandpas, influential males in uh, young ladies' lives. And of course the moms too right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you don't need to be the parent of a daughter to be influential, to support 
academic interests to say, of course you can do that. To say, oh, I don't like that media portrayal of somebody who says like, you know, oh, this is all that, you know, you are good for or can do to battle that every time it comes up. I think we've kind of gotten on a little bit of a rant here. Um, this is, you know, we'll get off our high horse about this, but um, it is definitely something that, you know, it just reignited a, a passion in me about that particular topic. The, the other thing that, that came up a lot in my mind or sparked a lot of thoughts was working with finance, like in projects, like just understanding the finance group's success metrics for approving a project, right? Like if you're working on something and you're not involving a finance team, when a finance team has to, you know, as a stakeholder and needs to, to sign off on something, you're just, you're missing one of the important stakeholders who, you know, who can kind of negatively influence like, you know, your project getting off the ground. So just don't overlook that. You know, we're both in technical sales, like as outside, you know, as people outside the organization who are trying to influence a project, like how high do you have to go to, to find the point where finance is involved? But that's like my selfish, you know, desire to understand that. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to get inside the mind of a former finance professional, go back and listen to the episodes with Scott Egbert, episode 227 and 228. So this is the other side of the coin. Yes. Yes. Oh, and don't forget personal finance and the importance of it. That was something that especially came up, you know, with regards to layoffs. So like that super important. And then I think the last things that I was thinking about listening back was manager meetings. You know, there's, there's two types, the kind of immediate manager meetings, like understanding the expectations of the job. And that comes before goal setting. And that comes before talking about aspirations and, you know, medium to long-term future career goals. I don't know that she said, you know, there's a specific order of operations, but the way that she talked about it, you know, at least strongly implied it. And it, it, was, it, was, it was very interesting to hear that perspective and go, oh, of course, like that, that makes sense. Like, you know, I think we've talked about it in a different way, which is you have to have strong execution on your current job before you kind of look forward and say, and this is the next job that I want to have. Like if you, if you're trying to move up, and you're moving up without actually doing your current job well, I mean, that's that's probably not setting yourself up for success. At least one perspective on it. And, you know, if you're playing Nerd Journey Bingo out there, you will notice the recommendation to have consistent one-on-one -on -one meetings with your manager. Yes. So important. Also, skip level meetings, talking to your manager's manager. That is a net positive balance of risk according to, you know, Sarisha. So that certainly is risky and meaning you're leaving an impression, right? That person has the opportunity to judge you directly as opposed to through the, the lens and maybe filter of your immediate manager, but you're also networking for the future. Like maybe that person can recommend you for increased responsibility or, you know, you have the opportunity to leave a positive um, impression on that person. So, you know, that's, you know, really, really good. Yeah. This is about exposure that Tim Crawford was talking about. Exposure to people within the organization. Exposure up. I mean, he was talking about exposure to other organizations as well. But I also thought about the discussion we had with John Nicholson back in episode 225 about how promotions work and that you actually need your skip level manager's sponsorship for something like that in a lot of organizations, not just your boss. Yeah, absolutely. At the very least, signing off on it. And the, the chance that somebody signs off on something, if they already know your work through, it, it doesn't have to be frequent meetings, but, you know, regular meetings where you're regularly leaving a positive impression, you know, that is, I think, going to be the key to success. You know, even just success in the job that you have. 100%. And then last thing, let's address the layoff situation. I liked Sarisha's advice of remembering to go and be around people and not isolate yourself, even if you're not really ready to have a lot of discussions. That was one that I hadn't considered, the the go be with people, even if you don't want to talk right then. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's so important. It 
it really sparked and it reminded me of something else that I heard about, which was uh, the prevalence of PTSD in people who go through traumatic situations like, uh, you know, especially, you know, veterans coming back from battlefield situations. Uh, but, you know, it can be anybody going through a traumatic situation. And the number one correlation with actually experiencing PS- PTSD was isolation. So going through trauma and then isolating has a positive correlation with uh, having that PTSD, the post-traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, is it causative? Like, you know, maybe unclear, but, you know, there's something about not being isolated that really, really cuts down on having that stress disorder. So if you're going through something, just maintain your connections to people. Even if you are stressed, you know, feel like you're stressed and uh, feel like your preference would be isolating, right? There's something about not isolating yourself that will actually lead to better outcomes. Right. Because you have to go through what Leanne Elliott called in episode 237, a psychological transition that happens Mm. in a layoff situation. That's a great episode to go back and listen to or any episode of the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast with Alan Leanne Elliott. I'll just say that. Those two are awesome. Yeah. That actually reminds me to go back and listen to their episodes again. We should try to have them on together. Like, I, I like their vibe on their podcast, so... Yeah, there you go. We need to see if we can get that vibe on our podcast. We do. All right, that's some homework for us. Homework, yep. Well, the last thing I wanted to say here was, notice the highlighting of a manager who really made a difference in Sarisha's career by waiting on her to get her visa. Mm. He held the job open for her because obviously he must have thought that she was the right person for the job. So there are things that good managers do to make an impact on people. And hopefully you've had a manager who's made a positive impact in your career. Yeah. Or if you're thinking about becoming a manager or are a manager, you know, have that positive impact, right? Yeah. Just put out good into the world. Keep trying to say smart manager things and you'll be fine. (laughs) Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman. For Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore, signing off. Adios. <laughs>